0: Tonight we begin in the middle of Matthew chapter 4, and we're only going to go to the end of the chapter. I don't know if you noticed, but the last time we were together, we only took half a chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And tonight we're only going to take half a chapter, uh, chapter 12 to the end of chapter 4, which ends with verse 25. You might wonder why we're taking a little bit smaller pieces here than we might normally do on one of these evening studies. And part of the reason is maybe I'm just sort of stalling until we get to Matthew chapter 5. Because when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, I'm a little bit intimidated by it. Uh, This is one of the greatest sections of Scripture that we can imagine that we're going to begin next week starting at Matthew chapter 5. And so I guess I'm excited and maybe just a bit intimidated by it. So I hope you'll forgive me for maybe a little bit shorter study tonight as we linger just a little bit in Matthew chapter 4 before we get to chapter 5. But as we saw last time we were together, the first half of Matthew chapter 4 is concerned with the temptation of Jesus. And one of the themes that we really wanted to explore was this radical contrast between the setting and the blessing that came upon Jesus at his baptism, and then the very difficulty that he endured during his temptation. But through both of them, Jesus was established and shown to be, demonstrated to be, the sinless Son of God. And that's exactly where we left it, at verse 11, where the devil left Jesus, at least for a season, after he withstood each one of the temptations that Satan brought to him, and where angels came and ministered to Jesus. Now when we come to verse 12, we come to a very different kind of passage, where it's going to describe the ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. So here we go, Matthew chapter 4, beginning now at verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, And upon those who sat in the region, in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, it says here that when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, that's in verse 12, he departed to Galilee. It's very interesting to do a comparison among the four Gospels. And if you do, you find out that this was not the first ministry that Jesus did in Galilee. We seem to be fairly certain by matching up what you might call a harmony of the Gospels. By the way, if you've never seen a harmony of the Gospels, it's a helpful tool for you to have either in book form or I'm sure it's very easily found upon the internet. But what it does is it chronologically correlates the four different Gospels. And a quick look at a harmony of the Gospels will tell you that the Gospel of John records a prior ministry of Jesus in Galilee to this. Most notably, in John chapter 3, and then later on in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it indicates that the first ministry that Jesus did with his disciples was a baptizing ministry in the Jordan, around the region of Judea. Sometime after that, and sometime before the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus went to Galilee to begin his itinerant ministry in that region. Now again, John's gospel records this early ministry of Jesus in Galilee and also in Judea before he went to Galilee that's mentioned here in Matthew chapter 4. The early Judean ministry of of Jesus included the earliest call of the disciples at the wedding in, in Cana of Galilee and the first cleansing of the temple followed by his interview with Nicodemus that took place in Judea. Then John told us what happened when Jesus traveled north to Galilee through Samaria and met a Samaritan woman at the well. But after all that, prompted by the imprisonment of John the Baptist, Jesus began this Galilean ministry. Now it's very interesting. The man who imprisoned John the Baptist was Herod. And Herod, the same Herod who imprisoned John the Baptist, It was he was the ruler over this area of Galilee. And so into that very region, Jesus went, so to speak, to minister in the very area that had opposed John the Baptist so much. Um, He was sort of picking up where John the Baptist left off. If John the Baptist's voice had been silenced in the region of Galilee, Jesus seemed especially urgent to go there and to do his ministry. And so it says there in verse 12 that he departed to Galilee. Now, the region of Galilee was a very fertile, agriculturally productive, progressive, highly populated region. According to figures from the Roman historian Josephus, there were some 3 million people populating the region of Galilee. Now, there are many people who think that that figure of Josephus is excessively high, But this is how Josephus arrives by it. Josephus says that there were some 204 villages in the region of Galilee, and each one of them had at least 15,000 people in population. That would give a population of more than 3 million people for the region. But even if Josephus was wrong in his estimation, even by double, you still have a very highly populated region. What I'm trying to say is this. We shouldn't think that the ministry of Jesus in Galilee was walking through a few, you know, small villages here and there, and there's the farmer milking his cow, you know, and there's a few people off on the hillside, and he's often this very barren, you know, not very highly populated region. No. The general region was highly populated. But what you should also know about Galilee is that Galilee was predominantly Gentile in its population. But it also had a large number of Jewish villages, towns, and citizens, of course. Now, Galilee was also very well known as an incredibly fertile region. There were many successful farms that took advantage of the good soil of the region of Galilee. So you have this very interesting region. It's a region with a significant uh, Jewish population but the majority population is gentile. It's a highly populated region and it's a region that was well known for good farming. So it says very interestingly here that Jesus left Nazareth verse 13 and came and dwelt in Capernaum. Now why did Jesus leave Nazareth? If we just take ourselves through the chronology of Jesus's life just for a minute, right? Born in Bethlehem, right? And apparently he stayed in Bethlehem for a few years because it seems like it took a couple of years for the Magi to get to him and Herod killed all the children who were less than two years. So Jesus lived in Bethlehem as a little baby, maybe for a year, maybe for a year and a half, maybe for two years. Then his family left and lived in Egypt for a while, right? We don't know exactly how long it was, but we know that after Herod the Great died, then the Lord told the family to come back to Israel or to the former land of Israel, but not to the city of Jerusalem, which they would have probably logically gone to. I mean, if your little boy is gonna grow up to be the Messiah, it makes sense that you would live in Jerusalem, but they didn't do that. Instead, they went to Nazareth, which was the hometown of Mary, which again was a remarkable step. You know, Mary left Nazareth under a cloud of suspicion, a very awkwardly timed pregnancy. The family leaves, they don't come back. What's going on with Mary and Joseph and their little boy? They finally come back. It was quite a move of faith for them to come back to Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up. And that's where Jesus was from, right? We don't say Jesus of Bethlehem. We don't say Jesus of Jerusalem. We don't even say Jesus of Capernaum. We say Jesus of Nazareth, which again, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, when we were in Matthew chapter three, it's fascinating that we say that. It's fascinating that Jesus took that title unto himself because Nazareth was a despised place. Nazareth was the kind of place that you did not want to be identified with. Yet Jesus, nevertheless, you might say, willingly called himself Jesus of Nazareth. But here we find in verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Now why? Luke chapter four tells us the story. Because in Luke chapter four, it tells us that Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth and began to preach there, right? Jesus started preaching, And at the synagogue in Nazareth, and what happened there? They rejected him. Remember, he opened up the scroll to the passage of Isaiah and told of the great things that the Messiah would do. And what did he do after he finished reading? He said, this day, this is fulfilled in your midst. And what was the reaction of all these people at the synagogue among whom Jesus had grown up with? Well, they said, well, how can you be? This is, this is Jesus. This is the son of Mary and Joseph. We saw this little boy grow up. He can't be anything great. He's just one of us. He just comes from our own village, from our own town. And they rejected him at Nazareth. Therefore, Jesus said, well, basically, if you guys don't want me, I'll go to another place. And he moved from Nazareth and came to Capernaum. It was significant that Jesus made his home in Capernaum and not in Nazareth. If you would have received a business card of Jesus, you know, Jesus ministries, you know, international. Well, not really international. He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, right? Jesus ministries to the lost sheep of Israel, right? Only rarely did he go outside of Israel, and that's a very interesting case that we might talk about later. But but on his business card, if there was a hometown address, it would have been Jesus of Nazareth living in Capernaum. That was his town of residence. That's where he lived. Now, why? Why does Matthew make a note to mention this? Well, Matthew may have been particularly interested in Capernaum because according to Matthew chapter 9, that's where Matthew himself lived. This was Matthew's hometown. This is where he was from. We also know that Peter had a house in Capernaum, according to Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 1, and Mark chapter 2. Peter had a house in Capernaum. By the way, if you go and visit Capernaum, you can go and see this city, this village, right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it's one of the remarkable places to go, is it not? Because you can see the synagogue right there. The synagogue and the ruins of the synagogue there, if I'm remembering correctly, because I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. The ruins that you see of the synagogue are later than Jesus' time, but it's built on the same foundation in the same place as the synagogue of Jesus' day. And not far from that synagogue at all are the remains of what they genuinely believe and have good reason to believe was the home of Simon Peter. So this is where Matthew was from. This is where Peter was from. And this is where Jesus chose to live in the days of his ministry. Now, again, it says in leaving Nazareth, Jesus did not go to live and make his home in Jerusalem. Again, I don't think we should pass this by lightly, right? Doesn't it make sense that if you're the, the, the Messiah and you're handing out your business card, shouldn't it say Jerusalem on it? I mean, that's where the Messiah should be from. It would seem that going to Jerusalem would be the smarter career plan for a Messiah. But Jesus dwelt in Capernaum. Very interesting. Now, here, he apparently lived somewhere, right? Now, according to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So we can surmise that perhaps Jesus did not own his own home, but somebody gave their home to him or allowed him to live in his home. He was allowed to live somewhere, of course. Now, here, he also paid his taxes or his tribute as an inhabitant. Later on, when Peter has to do the whole, you know, fish in a mouth thing, we'll get on too much later, that was because Jesus lived there as a citizen of Capernaum. And of course, this seems to please be the place that Jesus regarded as his home base in ministry. So, we know from verses 12 and 13, let's just take a look at that again. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison... He departed to Galilee. Again we see the boldness of Jesus, the bravery of Jesus, leaving, you know, what might have been safety. He goes to the very region of the ruler that put John the Baptist in prison and Jesus goes and begins to to, uh, sort of ramp up or increase his ministry there. And then verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. This is what I want you to notice. As is his custom, Matthew saw Jesus' ministry in Galilee as the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew is the gospel more than any of the others, although the others certainly do it as well. But Matthew, more than any of the others, is looking back to the Old Testament for the fulfillment of prophecy. And he saw Jesus's ministry in Galilee and headquarters in Capernaum, so to speak, as fulfillment of the prophecy that light would come to this region, this region that was largely populated by the Gentiles, right? Because what does he call it there in verse 15? The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which Matthew just quoted right here, this predicts this of the ministry of the Messiah. So here it was in despised Galilee. This place where people lived in darkness. In other words, they didn't have the advantages of the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood all around them and all those things that might help a righteous Jew live more righteously. They did not have all those advantages, but it was there that the light had dawned. And again, I don't think we should escape this. It's sort of remarkable to us that Jesus centered his ministry away from Jerusalem. Now, please, we understand that he made several trips to Jerusalem, and he did a lot of important ministry in Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about the life and ministry of Jesus. But his main preaching and teaching ministry, he did in the region of Galilee. Now, to call it Galilee of the Gentiles, as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, That was true in Isaiah's day, but it was even more appropriate in Jesus's day. Because again, successive movements of population into the area had given the region of Galilee a predominantly Gentile character. And again, it was a thoroughly what you might call mixed population. So in this area, what does Jesus begin to teach? Look at verse 17, because it's very important. It says... From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice this. Jesus began to preach. If you could summarize... The ministry of Jesus in any one word. Now, I'm talking about his earthly ministry before he did his great and eternal work on the cross. But if you were to describe the earthly ministry of Jesus in any one word, it would be accurate to say that he was a preacher. Now, I don't mean to minimize or neglect the healing and miraculous ministry of Jesus in the slightest. He did heal. He did minister to many people in a miraculous way. But on the whole, it seems fair to say that Jesus was a preacher and a teacher who healed, not a healer or worker of miracles who happened to also preach and heal a bit. This was the priority of Jesus's ministry as stated here in this verse and also in verse 23. Can we just get ahead of ourselves just for a moment? Look at verse 23. It says, now Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, those two are put first, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Again... Did Jesus do many amazing, miraculous things? Did he heal many sick people? Of course he did, and we don't want to neglect or ignore that part of Jesus' ministry at all. But again, on balance, the main focus of Jesus' ministry was to preach and to heal. It was, was to preach and to teach, and healing and, and miracle working were secondary. So what did he do? He preached. Do, do you know what that word means? In the ancient Greek, that word that's translated in our Bibles here as to preach, it's the word for a herald's proclamation from a king. It comes right from the ancient Greek word for a herald or a messenger, someone who brings a message direct from a king. So here's a man who comes from a king and he says, the king says you must pay more taxes because isn't that what kings mostly say? You know, the the king says we must assemble an army. The king says this. The king says that. That man was a preacher. He delivered a message from a king. That's what Jesus did in his preaching. The idea with preaching is proclamation. You're proclaiming something, right? Now, the idea of teaching is more instruction. Let me teach you how or teach you about something. Now, I think both of them are important elements. I don't think that preaching is any more important than teaching, or teaching is any more important than preaching. Both of them are important elements, but we can make somewhat of a distinction between the two. By the way, I would say that every good preacher also teaches, and every good teacher also preaches. Some men or some people who teach might have a more dominant characteristic. They might be more preachers. They might be more teachers, but I, in my perspective, both of them are, are important. And it says here that Jesus began to preach, he began to proclaim, and what did he begin to proclaim? You saw it right there, to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message that Jesus preached began the same place where the message of John the Baptist began. Did you notice that? Should we look back here? Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. It says, well, let's start at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then look at what Jesus said. Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, since Jesus waited until John had been put in prison, right? We just saw that a few verses ago he probably saw himself as picking up where John left off. And isn't that wonderful? It's almost like Jesus was saying to Herod the Tetrarch, Herod who ruled over that area of Galilee, he said, you might silence the voice of John the Baptist, but you're not going to silence the voice of God. You put John the Baptist in prison, God will raise up somebody else. God will raise up me to preach this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is what we must say though. We might say that Jesus started with the message that John preached, but he, of course, took it much further than John ever did because Jesus, excuse me, because John announced the coming of the Messiah, right? Jesus was the Messiah. John's message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah is coming. Jesus' message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, i'm here i am the messiah now when jesus used that phrase the kingdom of heaven is at hand i think there's two things we have to think about first of all he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven you will note that the gospels sometimes use the phrase kingdom of heaven and sometimes they use the phrase kingdom of god sometimes people wonder is there a difference is there a distinction to be made between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? And there are some people who make rather technical distinctions. The kingdom of heaven refers to this. The kingdom of God refers to that. I must say, I believe that there is no real distinction between the two terms. There actually seems to be no difference at all, especially in light of the Jewish custom of not even naming God directly, but referring to him by the place where he lives. A custom that Matthew, who was a Jew writing to Jews, would often use. In other words, a pious Jew in Jesus' day, and many in our own day, would never say, for example, I swear to God. He would never say that. He would say, I swear by heaven. And they would replace. They wouldn't say God spoke. They would say heaven spoke. It was their way of avoiding a direct reference to God, which they feared might be not pious. It might lead to taking the name of God in vain. And I believe that Matthew was just employing this phrasing because he was a Jewish man writing to Jewish people. So Jesus is preaching, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then now starting at verse 18, we see some of the men who are called as disciples. It says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here we see Jesus, right? You can almost see it in your mind, right? Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, right? You see the Sea of Galilee there, gently washing up on the shore. Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and then he sees two brothers. And what are they doing? They're casting a net into the sea. Now, what Matthew doesn't tell us, and I don't criticize Matthew for this, he can't tell us everything about the life of Jesus, but what Matthew does not tell us was that this was not the first men that these men, this was not the first time that these men met. Other gospels describe previous encounters that these men had with Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, and Luke chapter 5, verse 3 describe that for us. But this was the time that Jesus called these men to leave their profession of being fishermen and follow him in a full-time commitment. By the way, the Sea of Galilee had a very prosperous fishing industry, and its fishermen were sometimes men of some wealth. I'm not trying to say that they were rich men, but they were men at least who had some kinds of means. We know that Zebedee's family, according to Mark chapter 1 verse 20, Zebedee's family employed people to work. And so here we see that they were in fact employed with this. Now, When Jesus called these men, we also notice that he called them while they were doing something, right? He he didn't wait. It's almost if Jesus deliberately planned this, right? I'm sure these men took breaks, right? Didn't they take breaks from fishing? They can see them off drinking a cup of coffee or tea or whatever they drank in those days. There they are taking a break, resting from the hot midday sun. You can imagine them doing that very easily, right? But they did not do that. Jesus seemed to deliberately call them in the midst of their work. And this is very common in the way that God calls people. These men were busy casting a net into the sea, or they were busy mending their nets. They were busy doing good, honest work. And this is the way that God often calls. I like what Spurgeon says. He said, Our Lord does not call idlers, lazy people, but fishers. That's how he often does it. Uh, Saul was called when he was looking for his father's donkey. Uh, David was called when he was keeping his father's sheep. The shepherds were ministered to by angels when they were guarding their flocks. Amos was farming in Tekoa. Matthew was working at the tax collector's table. Moses was tending his father-in-law's flocks. Gideon was threshing wheat. So often when God called people, it was when they were in the midst of doing their work. So what did Jesus do? He interrupted their normal occupation. And what did he say? He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, in that day, it was very common for a rabbi to have disciples. There was nothing cult like Jesus coming up to a guy and saying, you follow me. You know, leave everything else and follow me around. If somebody did that today, you think, this guy's very strange. This is probably a cult. I don't want to be a part of such a thing. But again, in that culture, in that day, there was nothing cult-like about Jesus asking these men to be with him constantly and to learn from him. In some aspects, certainly not in every aspect, but in some aspects, Jesus offered these men a traditional education at the feet of a rabbi. But in other aspects, it was a very different path from a normal rabbinical education. But this is how it would work in those days. You learned how to be a rabbi by making yourself a disciple of another rabbi, an older rabbi, a wise rabbi, a mentor rabbi. Now, what I find interesting is two things. First of all, Jesus never had a traditional rabbinical education, right? Who was the rabbi that Jesus followed around? Nobody. Secondly, Jesus called these guys in many ways that we might consider to be non-traditional, but he did call them, follow me. This would immediately suggest to the disciples of a rabbi who would follow him, who they would follow to absorb his teachings and then say, I want to be like this rabbi. I want you to notice this. In this, Jesus was going much farther than John. John the Baptist had a very successful ministry, did he not? He called thousands of people, and thousands of people responded to his ministry. John the Baptist brought, in many ways, a revival. Yet, John the Baptist never said what Jesus said right here, and that was, follow me. John the Baptist could only point people to Jesus, which what he should be doing and what he did do, but Jesus was different. He said, follow me. And what was their response? The response was really remarkable. It says in verse 20, that immediately they left their nets and immediately they left their boat and father and they followed him. The immediate response of these disciples, I believe, is a very good example to us. The first disciples did what every disciple should do. They followed him immediately. Now, to follow Jesus in this way sometimes means that you have to leave some things behind, right? They left their boats. They left their fishing nets. I assume that their father or other people picked them up and made use of them, but they left them behind. The Samaritan woman left her pitcher. Matthew left his tax table. Blind Bartimaeus left his cloak. But sometimes following Jesus in this immediate sense is very important and very powerful, and it means that you leave some things behind. You know, I think back to something that I was just discussing with somebody the other day about Elijah. Remember when Elijah uh, confronted the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, that famous place where they have their sacrifices, right? And he says, you know, the Lord who's really God, let him decide by fire and the priests of Baal make their sacrifice and they dance around it and they cut themselves and they scream and shout to heaven, you know, trying to get Baal to answer by fire and Baal never does. And then... When the time comes for Elijah to do it, Elijah does it very simply and brings down fire from heaven. But before any of that, Isaiah, excuse me, did I say Isaiah? Elijah. You knew I meant Elijah, right? Even if I say El- Isaiah, you know who I'm really talking about. It's Elijah. Elijah made this challenge to the people of Israel. Elijah said this. He said, how long will you, essentially, if I could paraphrase, how long will you dance between two opinions? He called them to commitment, but he challenged them with that question, how long? It's a very important question, isn't it? How long will you be undecided in really living a committed life for Jesus Christ? How long? And it's as if God called the people to account for the period of time through the prophet Elijah, how long were they really going to do this? Now, I want you to notice if you were to ask that question of the disciples here, how long? They would say, no time at all. Immediately, we've done it. And that's exactly how it should be with us. We must give account before God for those years that we don't immediately serve him, that we don't immediately do what Jesus wants us to do. And I think that's a good challenge from perhaps any one of us. Is there something that you know Jesus wants you to do? Then why aren't you doing it? I don't know if I'm just preaching to myself here, but I certainly feel this in my life. There are things in my life, both in the past and perhaps in the present right now, that I know Jesus wants me to do them, but for some reason I feel justified in putting them off. Saying, well, I'll get around to it sometime. The immediately of the disciples right here, I think really tells us a better way. So Jesus has these disciples. What will he do next? Now verse 23, and Jesus went all uh, uh, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went, went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him, from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now, first it says that Jesus went, and this is in verse 23, around all Galilee and would teach in their synagogues. And you know, the customs of the synagogue in that day gave Jesus many opportunities to teach. Because in that day, they would often give visitors, especially a distinguished visitor, A chance to speak. That's how they would work it in the synagogue. There they would, they would be gathered, and you know how it would be in a village synagogue. Think how it would be in a village church in our day, right? You would know everybody in the church, right? And if a visitor came in, everybody would know, especially if the visitor was dressed in a way that would indicate that he was a rabbi or had some religious education. Therefore, when that kind of visitor came in the midst of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue would always give this invitation. Of course, we see this in the book of Acts, right? With the apostle Paul, the leader of the book of the synagogue would give the invitation. Well, we have a distinguished visitor in the midst. Does the distinguished visitor have something to share with us? And when Jesus would teach in the synagogues, he would take advantage, no doubt, of this custom for him to speak in the synagogues and to bring a message to them. By the way, After the distinguished visitor would give his message, there would be a time for talk and questions and discussions. As William Barclay said, the synagogue was the ideal place in which to get a new teaching across to the people and Jesus took good advantage of it. You can imagine Jesus speaking in the synagogues all around the region. And what did he do? It says, teaching in their synagogues, verse 23, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, as I said before, the difference between teaching and preaching is one of emphasis and one of manner. It's not a difference of content. It's not like the preacher has one message and the teacher has a different message. No, the preacher and a teacher may have the same message. It's just presented in a slightly different way. So what did Jesus do again? Verse 23, teaching in the synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Jesus' ability to heal those who had different kinds of diseases demonstrated that he had authentic power over the damage that was done by the fall of man. If you want to think about it, why is there sickness in the world today? Why? I'll tell you why there's sickness in the world today. It's because of sin. Now, I do not say that it's because of the specific sin of an individual, and that's a mistake sometimes people make today, right? Why is this person sick? Well, there's sin in their life. Why is that person sick? Well, there's sin in their life. No, 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 no. I don't say that sickness is necessarily the result of the sin of the person who's sick, but sickness is the result of sin in the world. Let me put it this way. Before there was sin in the world, was there sickness in the world? No. But the fall of mankind brought damage to the world, damage to the created order, and it brought sickness into the world. And here we see Jesus doing something remarkable. He's using his authority, his power as the Messiah, as a spirit-filled man to bring healing to individuals. Now, he also showed authority over demon-possessed, demon-possession cases. We'll talk about that for a moment. But I just want to notice one thing to you. Here is Jesus, the Messiah. He has all power in heaven and earth, right? And were the Jews waiting for a Messiah with power? Absolutely, they were. Absolutely. The Jews wanted a Messiah, and they wanted a Messiah with power. And now Jesus comes to them, a Messiah full of power. But here's the difference. What did the Jewish people of that day expect that the Messiah should do with his power? Well, they knew, obviously, if the Messiah had any kind of power, what he should use that power for was to call down fire from heaven and to destroy a bunch of Roman legions, right? And get the Romans out of there so that they could have their own nation and be a people glorifying unto God once again, right? That's what the Messiah Messiah should do with his power. Therefore, Jesus comes and this is what he does. He displays his power all the time. But how does he display it? By healing a sick person there, and a sick person here, and a sick person over there. He displayed the miraculous power of the Messiah by doing humble acts of mercy and service to people. Which drove the expectation of many Jewish people crazy. If the Messiah is here, and he has all this power, why isn't he using it? Why is he not using it the way that we thought he should? What Jesus was doing through this ministry of healing was not only ministering to individual needs in a glorious way that reflected the heart and the love of God, but he was also doing it in a way that would shatter the misconceptions that the Jewish people of that day had about the Messiah and the way that he should use his power. That's what Jesus did. Now, we also see in verse um, 24... His fame went throughout Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. This is the first mention of the demon-possessed in the New Testament. And what I find interesting about this is that the concept of demon-possession is mentioned very rarely in the Old Testament. Saul was one example. Saul was one man who was troubled by a spirit. You can find that in 1 Samuel 18, verse 10, and 19, verse 9. Now, it's interesting. The Old Testament doesn't mention much about the idea of demon possession. But there's obviously much more about demon possession on the pages of the New Testament than we find in the Old Testament or that we find in the contemporary Western world? And this is a very big question a lot of people have. Why is it when I read the Gospels, it seems that Jesus on every other page is is casting a demon out of somebody, but in the normal everyday life I live, I don't seem to meet many demon-possessed people at all. Maybe there's a few people out there, maybe you'll run into a handful of them in your entire Christian life, But it doesn't seem like there's demon-possessed people today like there was in the days of Jesus. Why? Well, let me give you several reasons. Some people believe that God gave the devil a greater allowance to afflict men in that way to give a greater evidence of Jesus' credentials as the Messiah. In other words, they would say that God himself restricts the ability of Satan and demonic beings to possess people more now than he did then because he wanted to give more reasons, more examples of Jesus's power. I don't think very much of that explanation. Okay, here's another explanation. Some people believe that God allowed the devil a greater allowance to afflict man in this way to rebuke the Sadducees who did not believe in supernatural beings such as angels and demons. You know, listen, it's pretty hard to be a Sadducee and say there are no angels, there are no demons when a demon-possessed guy is right beside you, right? And so some people believed that that was one reason why God allowed so many more demon-possessed people in the days of Jesus. Now, I have to say, I don't think much of that reason either for this very reason. A lot of people don't believe in angels and demons today. And you would think that God would allow much more demon possession today, right? So I don't think much of those first two reasons that I've stated. Okay, moving on. Some people believe that there was no greater allowance for demon possession in that day at all. And that there is the same amount of demon possession today. It's just not recognized as such. In other words, they would say That demon possession is like a greatly undiagnosed disease in our day, right? In other words, there are many people today who are demon possessed far more than you know, but we just don't recognize it as such. Well, I would say that in part, I think there's something to this, don't you? Don't you think that there are far more demon possessed people in the world today than we usually think of? But I think we get on to some better reasons with these last couple. Some people believe that there is simply far less demon possession in cultures that have been under the influence of the gospel for hundreds and hundreds of years. And far more demon possession in pagan and or animistic cultures. Now, you know what? I got to say, I think there's really something to that. I think in cultures and societies in the Western world that have been under the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ for hundreds and hundreds of years, there is just less demon possession. Because when you go to cultures that are not under the gospel and have never been under the influence of the gospel, you find far, far more cases of demon possession. But I would say that there's a further reason that I would add to this some people believe that Satan himself is not so interested in a strategy of widespread demon possession in humans in the contemporary Western world, because Satan finds his strategy of remaining anonymous and promoting spiritual skepticism to be far more effective tools today. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, Satan just wants to keep it quiet in the Western world, right? Why should he promote himself in such a strong way that would wake more people up to the reality of the spiritual world? No, Satan gains so much by promoting the materialism of the Western world that he doesn't want to wake the Western world out of its basic materialistic instinct by these obvious acts of demon possession. So I would say there are basically three main causes as to why we see so much less demon possession. First of all, I would say that there's more demon possession in the Western world than you think. Number two, I would say it does make a difference that the Western world has been under the influence of the gospel for so many hundreds of years. And thirdly, I would say that it's part of Satan's strategy itself to keep himself more obscure. But yet we find... And one of the glorious things we find as we go through this gospel, that Jesus has complete authority over demonic beings. You know, we talk about doing spiritual warfare, right? And spiritual warfare is real, and we need to recognize and, 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 and understand it. But isn't it funny? We almost never think of Jesus doing spiritual warfare, right? You don't see Jesus struggling much in these battles against the demons, right? Spiritual warfare, Jesus says, go, and it's out. That's the glory of our king. But we'll leave with this last thought here from verse 25. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Jesus had a purpose for allowing these miracles to draw such great multitudes, right? Jesus knew that when he did these miracles, that it would attract huge crowds that would be interested in following him. Why did he do it that way? Because Jesus wanted to teach these multitudes and not merely impress them with miracles. So Jesus did not do miracles just to raise a crowd for the sake of having a crowd. Yet he knew that doing these miracles would attract crowds and he could use that As a means to preach to them. And so we find that Jesus was making a tremendous impression upon this area of Galilee. And his fame spread everywhere. People were excited about Jesus. People from very broad, distant places. Did you see that in verse 25? Were you struck by that? From Galilee, yes. But also from Decapolis, those were the ten major Gentile cities in the region of Galilee. From Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, all these people came and they, it says there, that they followed Jesus. Now don't think that it means that they followed him in the same sense as the disciples followed him. No. They followed Jesus in a lesser sense, not as true disciples, but as a miracle worker. And certainly some of them became true disciples of Jesus, but the majority just simply followed him because he was an exciting man, a good teacher, and they wanted to see the miracles that he did. Well, we leave it off here, just on the doorstep of the great Sermon on the Mount that we'll get into next week when we start in Matthew chapter five. But what I like about Matthew chapter five is is I think that it tells us in many ways what the basic message that Jesus preached was. When Jesus preached, when he taught, when he preached to these multitudes and all around the city of Galilee, all the city of Galilee, the region of Galilee, what did he teach them? I think in many ways, the core of what Jesus taught them is included in the next several chapters of the book of Matthew. And that's what we'll take a look at in coming weeks. But if we should leave ourselves with any final thought, Why not leave ourselves with that great thought about how the disciples followed Jesus? That wonderful word, immediately. Maybe we should just ask God if there's not something in our lives that we've been waiting to obey him about, and instead we should obey him immediately. So let's pray. Father, that is our thought as we come to the conclusion here of Matthew 4. We think, Lord, of how wonderful the obedience of the disciples was, Lord, when they followed you immediately. Well, Lord, we want to have a similar kind of obedience, where we give you glory, where we follow after you. Help us to do it, Lord. And we just invite you to speak to our hearts. Lord, if there's some area of obedience that we have been waiting to obey you with, Father, just speak to our hearts about it, so that we can no longer wait, just obey you as we should, immediately.